Today, we're privileged to have with us the founder and president of People G2, Chris Dyer. Hey, Chris. Good afternoon, and thank you for joining me. Again, my name is Chris Dyer, and I'll be your host here for the next hour on the uh, Talent Talk radio show. We have a great lineup of guests, and I hope you're looking forward to hearing all of their great insights throughout the year. The Talent Talk radio show features a wide range of guests who care about talent management, leadership development, and company culture. So in the business world, talent really has a couple different meanings. And first is how it relates to success and how really talented people achieve success. And the second is how talent relates to human resources and how HR leaders find the best candidates for their companies. So this show will explore those two areas along with how talented individuals impact a company's culture. The guests on the Talent Talk radio show typically include CEOs, HR executives, entrepreneurs, but we also have coaches, consultants, authors, just all kinds of great business leaders from just about every industry you can think of. What typically happens is I'm at a networking event or a conference, and I have the privilege of meeting an inspiring leader. And So I created this forum to allow you to listen on our dialogue and learn some practical advice on how to cultivate talent, develop leaders, manage culture, and most importantly, impact your own career in a positive way. I uh, want to thank everyone who's tuning in live here every Tuesday. If you have a question for one of our guests, you can submit them via Twitter by tweeting your question to at PeopleG2 and using that hashtag Talent Talk. My producer, Mike, will feed me the best questions, and we can work them into the show as time allows. Also, don't forget about the uh, Talent Talk podcast on iTunes or Android. Make sure to subscribe to that feed, which now has over 130,000 subscribers. So we thank all of you who are tuning in and taking the time to listen on your own time, usually on the treadmill or watching uh, your your kid's soccer practice or whatever's convenient for you. But now we've got all the business out of the way. Let's get today's uh, show started. My first guest today in the studio will be Jeff Rogers. He's the CEO of Job Hunter Pro. And then I will have uh, Preet Anad, the founder and CEO of Pave Digital, joining me in the second half of the show on the phone. So let's uh, go ahead and get things started. So, Jeff, thank you for joining me here today on the Talent Talk Radio Show. My pleasure, Chris. I'm glad to be here. also want to compliment you on the growth of your podcast audience. I've seen it uh, grow pretty dramatically over the last several months. Yeah, it's really, I probably shouldn't say this, but it always feels like a big surprise. You know, it's like we started the show, it's will anyone, the first problem is will anyone agree to be on the show? And then if we can get anyone to show up, will anyone actually listen to the show? And so it's been really a fascinating uh, thing to watch that grow and kind of the community be there. And so I appreciate you saying that. But tell us a little bit about yourself and uh, your company, Job Hunter Pro. Okay. Well, let me start by saying I've been in human resources-related professions for the bulk of my life. Many of the jobs I've held have been uh, pretty varied, but uh, most of it has actually been as a VP of HR. Mm -hmm. In addition to that, I've been the CEO of a couple of different companies. I've been on several boards of directors. I've managed some professional services organizations and some project management organizations. So pretty varied background. Like most people in HR, I came up through the ranks, and I'll tell you, that gave me an amazing background, and it it allowed me to have a good sense of what it takes to make intelligent decisions, but it also gave me a great appreciation for the challenges HR people go through. Mm -hmm. So I'm glad to have had that background to help me out. As far as Job Hunter Pro is concerned, it's a typical outplacement firm in some respects. That is, we help people who are displaced from their jobs get reemployed, but we have some pretty unique characteristics. And probably most notable is our overall goal of helping to bring outplacement to the masses. And that's a socially responsible outplacement to the masses. By that, I mean what we uh, attempt to do is bring it to 
the broad spectrum of employees who are discharged or lose their jobs, as opposed to the select few, which is often the case. Mm -hmm. So that's a a very important part of our uh, overall philosophy. Probably just as important, though, is our overall goal to make outplacement as affordable as possible. We want it to be something that is not so much a challenge for outplacement companies today in terms of getting clients, because it's just not used as much as it could be. Lastly, we were changing the way outplacement is purchased, and we've done that in part through a subscription-based option, but also we're making it available to employers through the broker community. They already use brokers for things like you know, basic supplemental benefits, and it's a, sort of a natural flow from that. Mm-hmm. And last but not least, we want to improve the overall quality of outplacement in, in, the, in the general industry, the outplacement industry. Right. So do you think that's too much to ask? Probably not. But I guess the industry, I guess the market itself will ultimately determine that. But it sounds like a, a pretty good plan and from what I can tell. It sounds like you really kind of put together the two areas that we, we talk about here. You have that experience from an HR perspective, and you have the experience now running a company. And so that idea of talent kind of revolving around every day. So was there anything in particular in your background that you think really kind of helped you formulate your leadership style that you're currently practicing now from all those different experiences that you mentioned? Probably first and foremost is sort of the broad nature of my background. I've been able to... Uh, actually been very fortunate to have had several different kinds of positions and as a result I'm able to look at things through a variety of different lenses Mm -hmm. and that has helped me make decisions and guide the company and work with others be a little bit more sensitive to the kinds of things that help them out or are important to them. I was also I would say blessed in my career early on to have a, a CEO who I reported to who had a culture of what he used to refer to as informed (laughs) risk-taking. He didn't want us to be silly about taking risks, but he wanted us to be innovative and to look at various options. And that helped guide my career an awful lot. And I've kind of lived that philosophy ever since then. Well, if we put it in the term of maybe kind of transport this into maybe being a chef, I mean, if you know a thousand recipes... That can give you a lot of great options on how to, you know, figure out what would be the best thing to put on the table that, that night for, for dinner or for the special. The same end that can also paralyze you having too many options. So if you can have that great knowledge and depth of kind of those years of experience that come over a, a long period of time, you didn't learn a thousand all at once, right, and then suddenly not know where to go. You learn those things over a period of time. And, you know, then that risk-taking thing, well, hey, are we going to put these two recipes together? Does this make sense? You know, but putting, I don't know, something like oranges on, um, you know, eggs or something, I, whatever. I mean, something that might not go well together. I mean, this kind of sounds like what you're talking about here, but, you know, take a risk, you know, use what you know, and then try to come up maybe with something better that might be innovative. That's, I, I like that that term that the CEO had. That's, that's kind of, I've heard something similar to that in the past, but I like the way you, they put that. that was, that's kind of cool. Yeah, he was an interesting man, and one of the things that he made very clear is that status quo was not an option. He wanted to excel within the organization himself and to make it as good an organization as it could be in the community that we were serving. And as a result, uh, status quo was kind of frowned upon. And we'd sometimes in administrative team meetings kind of laugh about the people who would say, well, it's been working well for a long time, or we've always done it that way. Mm -hmm. Uh, That was just something that was never very well appreciated. Yeah. And did you ever have to fight off that maybe there were some things that were good left alone that maybe should be okay 
to be status quo every once in a while? Sure. There are yeah. certainly times and that that's the case. But the reality is, and this is what he would teach us, is it doesn't take a lot to manage the status quo. Mm-hmm. Almost anybody can do that. Yeah. But it takes someone with a little bit of creativity and gumption, if you will, to manage something that's a little bit more outside the box. That's a great word that's kind of been lost, I think, in our business vocabulary that probably should come back but gumption is really a not good it's a good it's a pretty good describer of the kinds of things i think we want some of our more innovative employees or leaders to be doing and it, it kind of have the guts to do to do something right to put your neck out and yeah you might get in, you might screw it up you might get in trouble but you might also find a really great way of doing something exactly. so I, I you know getting back to your your company and being an outplacement service probably saw a whirlwind of activity during our most recent recession and people were all of a sudden finding themselves kind of out of work and needing jobs so how did you handle this at that time and were really when employers weren't looking to hire but people still needed to work so how did you kind of handle that until the, the swing started to change well from a volume perspective of course uh, when people are laying a lot of folks off it helps us that's a good thing from just a business perspective right but it's also far more challenging for those who are displaced from their jobs and what we found was that there were an awful lot of uh, folks who were experiencing financial stress they were very concerned because they knew the markets were bad and it was harder for us to find people jobs interestingly there were a lot of jobs available but mm-hmm. the jobs were not quite as readily achieved. In part, there were extended times to hire, for example. We would find that people would have a tendency to want to take a job that maybe wasn't quite the right culture, or quite the right desire, or quite the right fit, or quite the right salary. But overall, there's a lot of jobs out there. Generally speaking, I think we have something on the order of 1.7 million people who are laid off or discharged each mm-hmm. month. But there's roughly 4.7 million open jobs out there. So it's a function of trying to find the right jobs for the right people. And they just get a little bit tougher to do when the economy is not so great. I had people asking me during that time for advice. And one of the things I thought I was seeing successful people do that had been laid off was in some ways to kind of I don't know if reinvent themselves is the right word, but to, to kind of change their perspective on where they were looking. So. You know, if they were doing customer service in a mortgage company, well, maybe that's not where they need to do customer service anymore. Or if they were, you know, doing some sort of tech- technical work, there was there's a way to take your skills and look in a completely different industry where maybe you're not as comfortable. You don't know everything you need to know there, but you have the skill set that's clearly there. And those people that were able to do that were able to get jobs, and they weren't out of out of work for very long. And there were other people who just, well, no, I only know this. This is what I do, and and they were, you know, standing in the unemployment line a lot longer mm-hmm. than, than the other group. So do you see some of that in in the work that you do, that those people who are a little more adaptable would kind of find those opportunities quicker? Absolutely. And what we also found is we had to probe deeper. We had Mm -hmm. to ask the right kinds of questions and then listen. And then we'd ask more questions and probe, well, have you thought about this? Because there's a lot of different options, of course. Someone who's been, for example, in a job for a very long time, they know it backwards and forward. Sometimes just thinking about the idea, maybe I could... do some consulting on that or some other kind of related work. Sometimes that was a a very important sort of aha moment for them. And it just takes asking the right questions and understanding the needs. And obviously, you have to very carefully monitor their financial needs because some of them are so economically stressed that they'll take almost anything no matter what it is. Right. And you mentioned a little bit ago about, you know, people being willing to take 
kind of during those more desperate times, less money or a different position or, you know, maybe going to a company they wouldn't have normally agreed to go into. So how how does your company kind of determine whether or not, you know, that employer and that prospective employee, there's a good fit there from a culture standpoint? We go through a career planning process with uh, the people that we work with. Career planning is a... Uh, it's really more of an art, I think, than a science. And probably the most important aspect of career planning is listening. You listen, listen carefully, then you ask probing questions, then you listen again. Mm-hmm. And you keep doing that until you start to get to the root of where they're coming from and what they need. One of the things that has been pretty obvious to us over a number of years is the fact that people in executive and professional ranks are much more aware of cultural kinds of things within organizations. Sometimes they even know the name of the person they'd like to work for. Mm -hmm. I think some of that comes from the standpoint that maybe they've uh, been in a seminar or they've read an article or they've chatted with them on LinkedIn or something along those lines. Right. I would love to work in this company or I'd love to work for that particular person and they focus on that and of course we try to help them find the alternatives if the particular one that they're looking for isn't immediately available. Mm-hmm. And how does the culture look within your own organization? Culture is I think first and foremost something that has to come from the top so obviously I have a, a big role in that and it has to be something that isn't just written on paper it has to be something that has sort of a living breathing presence and it's day-to-day. But it's not just me. It's also other leadership in the organization. So I looked at my own organization many years ago, and I thought, well, what's really important to me? And probably harking back to my early days, I looked at, well, innovation, creativity. Mm -hmm. I'm also extremely sensitive to uh, cost, in large part because that's been one of the focuses of our organization, is how can we make our company as cost-effective as possible because everything we spend gets passed on to our clients, and we don't want to do that. Another thing is dignity and respect for the individual, uh, hiring really good people, understanding that they have a similar uh, sort of view of the world, and that they live and breathe it, not just internally, but also with our customers with our, you know, the end users. Right. And so are you able to, to then put particular things in place to make sure that the culture is staying in line with that vision that you have? Probably the most important thing, Chris, at least from my perspective, is living and breathing it myself. Mm-hmm. I've had uh, the misfortune, if you will, of working for some companies where culture would be basically stated but it wouldn't be lived. And right. it doesn't take employees long to understand that huh, what they're saying is not what they mean. And so the most important thing I think I can do to make sure that the culture stays where it should be is to live and breathe it myself, to demonstrate it every day. And I've got some pretty good folks on board who uh, I've worked with for a long time. And I think we're very, very compatible from a cultural standpoint. Right. And it's always easy to make those um you know, decisions that are in line with your culture when they're easy decisions. It's when they're tough decisions, and that's when people start learning whether or not, I think, you know, you're really going to do what you're saying, you know. So you talked about some of those other leaders in your organization. So you probably have a certain amount of leadership development that's occurring there. What do you see are some of the keys to developing leaders that are around you that maybe, you know, listeners might be able to take notice from? Well, interestingly, most of the people within my organization are already senior-level people. They're either former vice presidents or directors of HR or similar kinds of jobs. So I view my job in terms of helping to 
build that culture and maintain the the kind of creativity and innovation that I want is to give them general guidance and then get out of their way. Mm-hmm. I find it much better to occasionally have to redirect their roles or uh, focus than to stifle their creativity. I want them to be innovative. I want them to tell me what I need to know, not what I want to know. Mm-hmm. And that's a tough thing to do sometimes. You know. <laughs> we, we all want to feel like we're always doing the right thing. Mm-hmm. But I think if we hire people that are smarter than us and we give them enough latitude that they will help us succeed. Yeah, yeah, I think you're absolutely right. So it sounds like you're, you're a pretty cult- good cultivator then of talent and you know, Job Hunter Pro seems to help you know, not only its own staff in that right direction, but, you know, coaching the prospective employees. So in your opinion, what are some of the best coaching techniques that, you know, kind of proven to be most effective for you? If, if I were to narrow that down to a single word, it would be listening. You know, every person that we deal with, every uh, individual, every one of our clients is different. They have different backgrounds, different needs, different urgencies in terms of their economic and uh, social aspects of finding uh, reemployment. And so we have to be, be very careful not to think that a cookie-cutter approach or boilerplate resumes or anything of that sort is going to work for them. We've developed what we call flexible learning paths, recognizing that each individual is very, very different. And so we ask probing questions, we listen a lot, ask more probing questions, and challenge them from time to time. We also encourage the involvement of their family, of their friends, of professional associates, that sort of thing. Essentially trying to get the client to look at things from a little bit different perspective, maybe through a little bit different lens, and that really, I think, is the biggest part of their success. I heard someone say this the other day, and I've mentioned the show a couple times, but it sounds like what you're doing from that listening perspective is listening to understand, not listening to respond, which I think a lot of us have a bad habit of doing. We want to have our response ready. We want to say something that will help or sound smart or whatever it may be. But ultimately, we need to be listening just to understand what the other person is saying and then take a moment to respond if that's the right time. And it sounds like what you're doing there by listening and then asking more questions and listening some more, you're really getting down really deep into what that pers- person's really saying. Absolutely. I think you hit it right on the head. Yeah. So one thing I wanted to make sure we, we asked, kind of over the last 11 years, with kind of the changes in, in your business, so the ups and downs with the recession, and I'm sure with kind of new technologies that have come into place, can you talk about how your business has changed, especially from a technology standpoint over that time period? Sure. The outplacement industry has had a a dramatic shift in the way things are delivered and the way people understand the kinds of things that are important to the end users. We had kind of a history, if you will, of very expensive, labor-intensive, and -and brick-and-mortar-intensive delivery mechanisms. Mm -hmm. And that worked well back before the days of the Internet. Then we started to see things like virtual come into play. And virtual is essentially uh, kind of bringing a lot of that brick-and-mortar stuff into the world of the Internet. That started to expand even more, and uh, we have now what we call adaptive. And adaptive is something that takes today's technology and it kind of abandons all preconceived notions of it and gives HR and the organization much, much more control over things like content, uh, the way things are delivered, and costs. And probably the most recent manifestation, which I I mentioned earlier is subscription-based outplacement. Some people might say, well, subscription-based, that's kind of different, and, and it is different. 
But you know what? Things are going that direction. Uh, even Microsoft these days is offering an office via subscription. Who, right. who would have thought that was going to happen? But there's a lot of benefits uh, to it. Among other things, you're able to cover the entire workforce, in many cases, for less than a single employee used to be covered before. Essentially, you take the cost of outplacement and you spread it over vast numbers of employees, just the same way you do for insurance, life insurance, for example. If you had to pay for episodic events for life insurance, you could, you'd have an awful lot of risk. Mm-hmm. But by using a subscription basis or basically premiums, uh, you spread that risk and it drops costs dramatically. So there's an awful lot going on. We're seeing, I think, some uh, interesting trends. I'm hoping that the idea of offering outplacement through brokers, that is insurance brokers, as a supplemental sort of benefit will help bring outplacement to the masses, and it certainly will reduce the costs. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, as time has just been flying by here, so uh, before we go, I did want to make sure we ask, uh, is there a particular book you're reading right now that you might suggest that our listeners check out? I have. It's interesting. It's a very old book, actually. I had to borrow it from a friend. It was called The Tipping Point. I was familiar with The Tipping Point. I knew the sort of the basic concepts of it. Right. But because of all that's going on in the outplacement world, I thought, okay, what's going to be that tipping point? What will make that big change happen virtually overnight? And so uh, The Tipping Point by Malcolm Gladwell is the uh, most recent book I have read, and I need to give it back to the person I borrowed it from. (laughs) Well, great. So it sounds like a good book. Uh, if you haven't read it already, or if you have, and go back and, and reread it, that's always a good idea to reread some of those kind of really good books that, that inspired us at one point. Uh, it's amazing how you go back and read them again, and you have a whole new perspective when you see them again. So how can people uh, get a hold of you or learn more about uh, Job Hunter Pro if they're interested? best way to get in touch with me and to learn about Job Hunter Pro is to go to www.jobhunterpro.com. Or you can send an email to just contact at Job Hunter Pro and jobhunterpro.com, that is, and uh, that will get to me. Great. Well, Jeff, thank you so much for being on the show today. We really appreciate you being here. Maybe we can have you come back at some point and give us a little update on how you're doing and how your company's doing. Love to do that, Chris. Thank you. Let's take a brief commercial break, and uh, when we come back, uh, Preet Anand will be joining us via the phone here on Talent Talk. Welcome back to the Talent Talk radio show. Don't forget, you can check us out uh, either on the podcast system, on iTunes or Android. You can also go to talenttalkradio.com and click on, click. on you can see all the different uh, shows there. But let's go ahead and get to my next guest, Preet Anand. He's the uh, founder and CEO of Pave Digital. Preet, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. So tell us about yourself and, uh, of course, about your company, Pave Digital. Sure. My name is I'm Preet. Uh, I'm the CEO and founder of Pave Digital. That's that's our legal name. Uh, we go by Blue Light. Do business with Blue Light. Uh, so, and that's because our our product that we're really focused on and the brand we're building is Blue Light. What we do is we're really focused on bringing personal safety into the digital age. Because right now, when you call nine one one from a smartphone, it's worse than calling from a landline, um, which is insane when you think about it. So yeah. that's what we're focused on, and we're really excited about where we're going. So you said Pave Digital or a Blue Light here is uh, your first entrepreneurial venture. So what is it that moved you to pursue you know, creating this company? Sure. Well, you know, when I was a freshman in college sitting in orientation, I was pretty bored. And then suddenly during that time, I remember hearing the campus safety spokesperson saying that one in four females are going to be victims of attempted sexual assault by the time they graduate college. And I heard that, and I was just, like, floored, astonished. And I I thought about that, and I 
said, one in four, what does that look like in my own life with the people I know? And it just, I wasn't okay with that number. And so I decided that, you know what? I wanted to put a dent in it whatever way I could. Even a, even a tiny dent in that number has huge dividends for society. And you know, down the line, I first tried to start by making pepper spray better. That was wrong. And then many years later, as the smartphone came out, I realized this was the medium. This was the opportunity. And so does the blue light have any correlation with the kind of, you know, the blue lights around those little stands around the uh, you know, universities and things like that? You are completely correct. Okay, so I want to make sure I had the right connection there. So, yeah, I mean, that's a pretty uh, significant, uh, you know, kind of addition to campuses. I mean, how, how did that really come about? Clarify what you mean. As far as, as having those, those connected uh, systems there with those blue lights, I mean, what's, what, what's the story there to kind of bringing those to fruition? Sure. So we, we don't, you know, we don't connect with those. It, it's more of that is a way of building the association with people about sort of, uh, the proactive uh, sort of ever-present value of the service. And so in many ways, our business goal is to, dis- to displace many of those because the same way that there were pay phones and those are now gone, or mm-hmm. cell phone. you know, why is it on a college campus if you're touring a campus like UCLA that the standard is still, if you need help to run 200 feet to the nearest call box and press a help button, right. your smartphone is in your pocket. Right, right. So you're essentially trying to find a way then to take that you know, cell phone and, and be able to, to do that. You can almost have that, that kind of system virtually. Make it, they could have that app open and almost you know be ready to, to click a button if they needed help or to be able to call 911. That's, uh, that's pretty significant. So maybe we could talk a little bit then about as you look to kind of recruit individuals and in for your company as you're trying to build this system and what you're doing what are some of the key factors you look for aside from you know the kind of obvious skill set and you know if they're a programmer bringing a programmer but, but what are some of the things that are important you know from a person's standpoint uh, as they come into your company sure for us you know there's there's that's a beyond just as you said uh, extreme competency in their in their specific area it's first uh, are they excited about the impact of what we're trying to do? It, you know, we we fundamentally believe that we are building the next generation of 911 and sort of safety services, and that's a big, exciting goal. But it's also one that's going to take a long time to manifest. So we first look for excitement and empathy with the mission and the purpose of the company, and then the other two things are: can is this someone who we can trust to make decisions? and is willing to make decisions in the face of ambiguity. And then afterwards, is this someone who has demonstrated a willingness to learn? Because in the technology business, the one thing that's constant is change. Ten years ago, you know, none of the smartphones we use even existed. So in a decade, literally the landscape of all of our daily interactions has changed. And so, you know, you have to keep learning. Yeah, that's a pretty big one. I mean, to have someone, like you said, that can is willing to make decisions, that you can trust to make decisions. Those are some pretty big, uh, you know, kind of stakes in the ground there because you can find people maybe to do one, but maybe not both. So that really gets into, you know, I would imagine your overall culture in the company. So maybe you could kind of describe what the culture is like that you've tried to establish within your organization. Sure. Uh, you know, we try to, we, we definitely have, I'd say, a culture that has a, a lot of trust as part of it, and we say the word, I trust you, very often, and just as you would see that. And what that looks like for us is if someone encounters a problem, they're sort of expected to already have their own view on what the solution should be, sort of like 
I think you had the speaker a couple of weeks ago of turn around your own ship and how we talked about the change from, you know, can't, instead of asking for permission, they said, I intend to. Mm-hmm. Same sort of thing that, you know, we, when we run into a challenge, whoever is on the ex- dealing with that directly is sort of already going to have their own approach on how they're going to address it. They may come back to the team for feedback, but, you know, we really try to say, hey, we believe in you. Go for it. But another part of that, though, is when there is that sort of feedback, we are very direct with each other. And it's being direct in the pursuit of finding the right answer for the company and the customers. And I try to embody that by, you know, there's definitely times I'm wrong, and I'm very proud to admit it, because that means if we realize where we are wrong, it gets us closer to getting right as a company. Yeah, for sure. And so, you know, as the CEO, then, how do you ensure that your co- your culture is really staying in line with the vision that you have? I mean, you can hire the right people you think are, are going to, you know, be able to make those decisions, you trust to make those decisions, but there's still at some level some massaging that. I mean, you can, you can set a good example and things, but do you have particular ways that you kind of heat check that or to make sure things are kind of staying and flowing the direction you want them to go? Absolutely. So, I mean, on a weekly basis, uh, I just sort of send that in. We're still a pretty small company that, you know, a single week makes a huge difference in where we're going. And every week I send out an email just in terms of, you know, sort of state of things. What are our wins? What are what are areas for improvement? And, and I always try to be extremely candid with the team on that. And then also on top of that is always bringing up the elephants in the room and, and pushing people to think bigger. Because sometimes, uh, sometimes you know, there's this sort of like, thing that you can feel is hasn't been addressed and uh, as much as I can share the example that we are we need to address those we need to talk about these even if they're uncomfortable I think that that sets an example yeah. and I, I do it with my own things too often when I'm proposing something or stating something I will bring up the counter argument first just to show that again there is a space to do this it sounds like there's a level of communication there transparency so are there other maybe things that you might identify that kind of, you know, make you an effective leader? Well, I think you'd have to ask my team for that more. <laughs> uh, they, they, uh, they would be the one to tell you if I'm an effective leader or not. But, you know, when, when I ask them this, I think that what they sort of tell me is first that, again, willing to sort of push the boundaries by asking hard questions. And it's not hard questions being asked at people to make them uncomfortable. It's asking hard questions to help us find the right answer uh, for the company. And then also that I'm honest and transparent and willing to admit mistakes when and failure even when I'm the cause of them. Because, again, to me, the focus is can we do right by the company and do right by the customers? And if I'm wrong on something specific but it ends up that the entire company does right about it, that's winning. The best thing as a CEO is for your company to be doing great. Sure. That is a little bit of we have a little bit of uh, some kind of crackling noise there. I hope our connection is not kind of going down. But from a you know from a leadership development perspective, what do you think is the most important thing for people to know about what it takes to develop quality leaders? You know, so you're you said you're you kind of a still a newer business. You guys are uh, at that point that you know week to week can be drastically different. So, are the things that you have to do to keep developing those leaders to 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 keep making those decisions that you think they need to be making? Absolutely. You know, I I don't want to overstate the word trust too many times, but I think it is empowering people to make decisions because a lot about what leadership is, is decisiveness and being accountable for that. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I think 
it, it is something that you have to take a long-term oriented view and realize that it's not just about, again, the week to week, but where are you going to be years from now? Who are going, where are the members of your team going to be? Because leadership isn't lazy. Like you have to take time to think and, and, and sit on that and stew on that and question. So I would say really honestly, the most important thing that I think people need to do when they're trying to develop quality leaders is take time for it and and really start developing those muscles sooner rather than later. Mm-hmm. And I, I think you see this sort of happening in very large businesses. Uh, succession is a big issue. And, you know, some of the biggest companies in the world, if you look at it, they don't really have succession issues. Like Apple, for what it's worth, the most profitable company in the history of the world in terms of profits in a quarter, Tim Cook has been with that team for, you know, 10 years when he took over as CEO. You know, GE, you know, a 100-plus-year-old company, succession is a big part of what that CEO's job is, and leadership development is a huge part of that. And, and sometimes a lot of that is, you know, people want need to feel very connected to the company. It's one thing to get paid well or to like the product or the service they're they're selling, but you have to really appreciate the company. And one of those things that, you know, very often employees are, are really kind of struck with or, or really stick to are the, the values that are uh, really being pushed by the company. And I know one of the things that uh, on your site you guys talk about is kind of being a values-driven company. So maybe you could talk a little bit about what that means for, for your company and what are the what are those kinds of values you're talking about. Sure. So our, you know, working in the safety and security business, our key message to our customers is we say, lead the way, We've got your back. And that means we're, we're really asking for people to put a lot of trust in us. And in terms of how we operate as a business, then we need to operate with trust as well. And that means we, we ask ourselves, is this right for the company? How does this, for the company and for the customer, you know, the actions we take, it means when we're hiring people, we ensure that they understand and can empathize with what the customer is going through, what the customer's needs are, you know, even down to, even sort of colors we pick in our product. You know, if you download our app, which you can find by searching Blue Light Safety, you'll notice there's no red in it because we're not trying to be a source of panic. We're trying to be a source of reassurance. So it's it's really on a day-in and day-out basis, we are always trying to reemphasize that trust and that credibility and making sure that we're making long-term decisions that people can depend on. Well, and that's uh, ultimately that's what you need. You need your customers to be to want to want what you're selling and to trust you, and believe in and you're going to be able to deliver on those things that you're you know you're promising. And your your employees, your staff, uh, and the overall approach are a big part in making that happen. So it sounds like you're really on your way. And with everything you, you've told me today, it kind of makes me think that you probably had at least one, if not multiple, you know, pretty good mentors that you know, taught you some, some great leadership along the way. Is there any any one or a few that you might point out as, as kind of being really monumental for you? Oh, sure. Far away, the first one that comes to mind is my parents. As immigrants from the USA who literally lived the American dream, uh, they've always pushed us as their kids to excel at whatever it was we did. And so as I've grown up, uh, they've always had an amazing advice along the way. And also provided a safe space for me to deconstruct a problem. Of course, my team for giving me great feedback along the way, and they are leaders of their own domain. You know, our Android engineer, Mateus, for example, he 
his title internally to the team is the CEO of Android. Like, I looked at him for that level of leadership. Uh, and then I think the last one, one of my investors, a gentleman by the name of Hitin Shah, gave me super interesting advice that he said, as a CEO, as you're growing your company, you need to be constantly firing yourself from jobs. And I struggled with that for a little bit. And then he, he re-explained, he's like, if you are doing the right job as a CEO, you will find people who are doing who will do a better job than you in these specific areas and, and methodically removing yourself from those. And that's been a really valuable perspective on how we think about hiring and how we think about developing our team. Well, that's a great way to put it, and I think it's something that entrepreneurs really struggle with because we get in the habit of doing so many things, wearing so many hats, and then we get used to doing it, we get good at doing it, and it's hard to give it up sometimes. It's hard to relinquish that control. And sometimes it's really hard to find someone who can do it as well as you have done it or better. And those are all big challenges. And, you know, it's very, very easy to end up as an entrepreneur who's wearing too many hats and is not really reaching the goals that you want to reach because you don't have time to get everything done. So I totally agree. I really like the way totally that, 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 uh, that gentleman put it. I think it's a great way to... Uh, to, to kind of do it. So when, you know, when the time is right, when you have the money, when you have the, you're ready to bring in the next people, that's a perfect way of doing it is you need to be firing yourself all the time. <laughs> yeah. You know, I, I would, I would definitely say like, you are so right. And uh, I think it is such an amazing feeling when you realize that you no longer have to worry about this thing because someone's smarter than you handling it. And like, there is not a day that doesn't go by where, I'm, I'm just super grateful for my team and the things that they can accomplish. But on the flip side of that, like you said, finding those right people can be a painful process. I mean, when we're hiring for certain positions, no joke, fully 40 to 50% of my time goes into finding those right candidates and spending the time to really bring the right people on board who are going to make the entire company more successful. Which can make you think, should I just keep doing this job myself for a little bit longer instead of putting all that energy into finding that person? I mean, it's a it's it's a really uh, tempting thing to do. And, you know, you can, it, it can trip up the best of us, you know, when you're, you're kind of making that decision of whether or not you're going to give those things up. So I did want to ask you, uh, is there a particular book you're reading right now that you might suggest our, our listeners check out? I'm reading, so... Oh, that's, that's actually a nuanced question, sir. I'm right now reading Onward, which is the turnaround of Starbucks and Certain to Win, uh, which is by Chet Richards. But the book I would actually recommend um, your listeners read for some really interesting counter, some counterintuitive nuggets is Titan, which is the biography of John Rockefeller. Hmm. And the reason I say that is because while I know Standard Oil is often looked at as, you know, a monster of, and the worst example of Robert Barron, Rockefeller actually took some really interesting perspectives that, for example, in talent development, he thought the most successful thing a member of his company could do is figure out how to bring on a replacement that will do a better job at that current job than themselves, and that literally that they would then put their feet up on their desk and think about new ways that the Standard Oil Company could make more money. That's an example of a nugget. Another one is that Rockefeller slept nine hours a day and often worked in the afternoons at home. And considering that these are in the late 1800s, I think it's actually really interesting to see how 
one of the most successful business organizations in the history of our country thought about his own development and the development of his organization. Yeah, you wouldn't have thought about that. someone, an early uh, remote worker there. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> he probably had the money to have a telegraph or his own uh, personal career or something. But, um, yeah, I mean, that's uh, that sounds like a really fascinating book, and I'm sure we'll, we'll, we'll definitely uh, check it out and can pick up some of those great nuggets. It sounds really interesting. Well, it's been a pleasure having you on the show uh, today and learning more about your company. How can people find out more about you and, and your company and the great things you're doing? Sure. Our website is getbluelight.com. And you can find our apps by searching Blue Light Safety. Uh, Blue Light is one word on either app store. And if you're interested in us bringing our service to your campus, just send us an email at support at getbluelight.com. Uh, we're currently focused on college campuses and student corporate campuses, and it takes us less than a day to get a new campus set up into our network. So definitely shoot us a note. Well, thank you so much for being on the show today. We really appreciate you being here, and we'd love to have you come back at some point and give us an update. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. All right. That's about all the time we have for today's show. Thank you again to Jeff Rogers and to Preet Anad for uh, joining me. Tune in next week, 1 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, as I welcome Dorinda mcdonald Popper, the director of HR at Corvell Corporation, and Leslie Jossels, she's the principal at Order Out of Chaos. Until then, do what you love and show the world how talented you can be today. You've been listening to Town Talk Radio Show, brought to you by People G2.